I want to just say a word of prayer. I want to include, obviously, uh, prayers for uh, people in Paris and for all that they've been through uh, in the last few days. If you would, please uh, join me in prayer this morning. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we come to you with um, just broken hearts, uh, angry hearts, frightened hearts, about all that happened, uh, that has happened in Paris this uh, Friday night, early Saturday morning. Lord, it is senseless. It is wrong. There's a sense of confused, uh, a confusion about what to feel regarding it. Obviously, obviously we're sad, but angry as well. Lord, we pray that you would comfort uh, those who were injured. We pray that you would comfort the families uh, who lost loved ones on Friday night. Lord, we pray that this would be a moment that would cause many to begin to search for truth. And that perhaps there would, be, there would be some who would come to believe in you, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the universe and the King of Kings. Lord, we pray this morning that as you speak to us through the scriptures, that we would have ears to hear, that you would go deep into our souls, and that whatever resistance that we may put up, I pray that you would go beyond that, and that you would speak to us in a way that is very personal. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. Just this past week, a very unexpected uh, source, a New York Times columnist by the name of Paul Krugman, wrote a column entitled, Despair American Style. And he acknowledges in this column, it's very unusual, I think, that he would have acknowledged this, but but he does. He acknowledges that there is an unexplainable darkness that is spreading over our society. And Krugman points to a number of things as indicators of this. He points to rising suicide rates. He points to the overuse of opioids. He points to uh, death from drug poisoning. He points to chronic liver disease from alcoholism. points to a number of things like that as proof of this spreading darkness. And then he considers a number of possible explanations for it. And then even a few possible governmental solutions for it. But then he concludes with this. Listen to this. He says, at this point, you probably expect me to offer a solution. But while universal health care, higher minimum wages, aid to education, and so on, would do a lot to help Americans in trouble, he says, I'm not sure whether they're enough to cure existential despair. It's fascinating that he uh, would write that. That is not his bent. It's fascinating that he would write that. What is causing this existential despair that is spreading across our country, even our own city? I sense it here in our city. I don't know if you do, but I sense the same thing in our city. What's causing it that's spreading through perhaps even your own life? Well, if you have a Bible with you, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to Mark chapter 8 this morning, verse 27. And if you can set aside 
your tendency to think that if anything that uh, to think that anything ancient can't possibly speak to modern dilemmas, uh, I think you will find that this passage speaks very powerfully to the despair of our culture this morning. Mark uh, chapter eight and verse twenty-seven. And by the way, today we come to the end of the series that we've been in on the first half of the book of Mark. Uh, for quite some time, and I'm sure that some of you have wondered if this day would ever come, but we have come to the end of the first half of this series, and the next year we'll take up the last half uh, of the book of, of Mark. I want to read the first half of this passage uh, that we read last week. Uh, I want to look at it again this morning, then we're going to look at the other part of the passage as well, but let's, let's, uh, let's read it this morning, starting at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus warned them, not to tell anyone about him. And then he began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Verse 32, he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Okay, let's stop there for just a moment. I said last week, uh, but I want to remind you again, that Mark has very intentionally constructed his gospel in a way that everything that has happened so far in the gospel of Mark, every healing, uh, every exorcism, every miracle, every conversation that he has had, uh, that Jesus has had, all of those things have led to this one climactic moment in which Peter asserts that Jesus is the Christ. See, the question that Mark has wanted us to ask throughout the first half of this book is, who is uh, this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And Peter answers the question for us. He says he is uh, the Christ. And I think this passage speaks to our despairing culture, and I think it speaks to the cure for our despair in at least two ways this morning. And I'm going to give you the first here. You can write this down somewhere. We need a king. We need a king who will do the inconceivable. That's what our culture needs. That's what you need. It's what I need. It's what all of us need. We need a king who will do the inconceivable. What do I mean by that? Well, starting with the idea of just we need a king. More than most cultures, our culture tends to be very independent and very individualistic. Part of our problem is that we weren't meant to be independent. We weren't meant to be individualistic. We were made to be in relationship with the benevolent king of the universe. That's what the beginning of the Bible is all about. That's what the beginning of Genesis is all about. That relationship is what gives our lives meaning and purpose. And if we get separated from that relationship, life becomes futile. It becomes meaningless. And so when Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, he is declaring that Jesus is that king for whom you were made, for whom I was made, for whom our culture uh, was made. Okay? The word Christ literally means anointed one, the Messiah, 
Understand that Peter is not just saying, you're aching. He's saying, you know, the anointed one. He's saying that you are the king to end all kings. You are the true king. You are the Messiah. You are the king for whom we were made. Okay. I want you to notice that in verse 30, Jesus accepts Peter's declaration. But then in verse 31, Jesus says something so appalling, so shocking, that he blows his disciples' categories and fries their minds, so much so that Peter tries to rebuke Jesus. Now, just, okay, don't let that pass over. Stop for just a moment. Jesus has just said, you are the King of Kings, you are the Messiah, Uh, you are God in the flesh, you are all of those things, and now he decides that he, Peter, is going to rebuke uh, Jesus. Makes sense to you? That makes no sense whatsoever. You should not, you know, you don't say, you're God, you're the king of kings, and by the way, I'm going to correct you. You don't say that. That's ridiculous, okay? But he decides he's going to try to rebuke Jesus because of what Jesus is going to say. Let's read it, verse 31. He then began to teach them. We just read this a moment ago, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. I want to look at a few of the key words and phrases to understand what it was about this that so blew Jesus' disciples' minds that Peter felt that he had to rebuke Jesus. Okay? Let me start with this phrase, Son of Man. Son of man, underline, circle, whatever, uh, highlighted in your Bible, however you do it. But I want you to just notice this phrase, son of man. This, this, uh, this phrase, son of man, was one of Jesus' favorite uh, titles for himself. It's how he often referred to himself. He liked to refer to himself in this way. One reason was that it demonstrated his identification with, hum- with humanity. But there's another reason for it. It picks up a theme from one of the Old Testament prophets named Daniel. There's a passage in Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel makes this reference and he says, he, says, he, he says that there is one who is like a son of man, he says. One who is like a son of man. That's way back in Daniel 7. He's a divine figure who is going to come with the heavenly hosts to put everything right. A messianic figure. A divine heavenly figure. And the fact that Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man is his way of saying, I am who Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, was referring to. And you see this down later in the passage in verse 38. We haven't gotten there yet, but you see that Jesus says the Son of Man, he also refers to himself as the Son of Man, will come in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Okay? That's down in verse 38. So Jesus is saying, I am that one from Daniel chapter 7. I am the son of man that was prophesied in Daniel 7. Okay? And that's an audacious statement. You have to understand, that is a very audacious statement for him to say. But then he says, back up in verse 31, he says that the son of man must suffer. Now understand that when he says, I am the son of man and I have to suffer, when he says those two things... Understand that Jesus is bringing together two ideas, two ideas that up until that point in history 
had never been brought together before. Never before had anyone in Israel connected suffering with the Messiah until that moment. Now, now, some of you who might be very knowledgeable about the Old Testament might say, well, look, you know, there are places in the Old Testament, like for example, uh, in the prophet Isaiah chapter 53, where you read about a servant of the Lord, a mysterious servant of the Lord who suffers. You're right. That's there. But nobody before had ever put Daniel 7 and a passage like Isaiah 53 together with the idea of the Messiah. This idea that the Messiah could suffer, the Son of Man, this incredible divine figure, the idea that he would suffer makes no sense at all to the disciples because they had thought from the time that they were children, They had been taught that the Messiah is supposed to come and he is to politically liberate Israel with with, uh, demonstrations of strength and power and that he's going to defeat all evil and injustice. This is what they've been taught from their mother's knee. This is why they're so appalled. It's why they're so shocked. It's why they're so mind blown. This is why Peter takes Jesus aside. And notice what verse 32 says. It says he rebukes him. Let me tell you what that word rebukes. Let me tell you about that word. Uh, That word rebuke is the same word that is used when Jesus rebukes demons throughout the gospel of Mark when he casts them out of people. That's what Peter is doing. That's how shocking this is, what Jesus says to Peter, what he says to his disciples that he's going to suffer. That's how appalling, that's how inconceivable this is to Peter. Jesus is teaching them, yes, I'm the Messiah. Uh, Yes, I'm the king. I'm going to defeat all evil and injustice, but I'm going to do it in the most inconceivable manner by going to a cross instead of a throne. What king does that for his people? Do you understand? Do you know? Do you understand what the cross meant? Do you understand it? Like the cross was the epitome of helplessness and shame. Like every other form of execution that, uh, that could be used gave the person being executed more dignity and more power than the cross. But on a cross, you are stripped naked. You are nailed open. You are hung in front of everyone. Everyone can gawk at you. It was the epitome of helplessness and shame. It was the exact opposite of a throne. It was made of wood, just like thrones were, but it was the exact opposite of a throne. And Jesus says, that's where I'm going. What you're going to see in the last half of the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus is going to take the disciples from Caesarea Philippi all the way to Jerusalem. That's, that's the last half of the Gospel of Mark, his walk to Jerusalem. And he's saying, he's saying, I'm going to Jerusalem, but I'm not going there to live. I'm going there to die. I'm not going there to take power. I'm going there to lose power. I'm not going there to rule. I'm going there to serve. That's how I'm going to defeat evil and put everything right. That's what Jesus is saying. And when he uses this word, this phrase, son of man, he's tying together these two themes that no one had ever tied together before. That's what was so inconceivable. But also, watch this. Now, why does he have to come in, in, in weakness instead of power? Notice, notice something in verse 31. 
Notice that Jesus does not say the Son of Man will suffer. Instead, he says, the Son of Man, what? Must suffer. And then he says it again, twice in this verse. He says, the Son of Man must be killed. Very different meanings between will and must. Two completely different ideas. And it's very significant because it's repeated twice in this passage. What's the difference? What is it that's so significant? Why, what's so important about this difference between will suffer and, and must suffer? Well, I want you to think about it for a minute. Let's say, let's say that you and I uh, went to the top of some tall building here in downtown Evansville. And I said to you, uh, I said, look, I want you to know how much I love you. And I'm going to show you how much I love you. And then I get, up, uh, I get up on the ledge of the building and I say, watch. And then I throw myself off the ledge and fall to my death. Do you look over the ledge and say, look at how that person loved me? Or do you look over the ledge and say, that dude is crazy? Which do you do? Which do you say? It's the latter. He crazy. That's what you say, right? Yeah. That's what it would have been like if Jesus would have said, the Son of Man will suffer. It's like, well, you know, okay, that's some self-determined thing. You're just going to go be a martyr. So, you know, big deal. Son of man will suffer. Would have been, you know, like that would have been, it would have been crazy. He would have been dying just to die, just to be a martyr. But let me change the scenario just a moment. What if you and I are standing on top of a building here in downtown Evansville, and you get very close to the ledge, so close that you start to fall off the ledge? And the only way that I can save you is by pushing you to safety somehow. But the only way I can push you to safety is if I fall to my death. Now that's totally different, isn't it? Right? Then you look over the ledge and you say, Man, he really loved me. He really loved me. That's what it means. When it says, when the text says that the Son of Man must suffer, there was no other way. It was Him or us. It was Jesus or us. Why? Because, and you don't want to hear this, because your sin is so heinous, so offensive. That it demanded God's justice. And the only way that God's justice could ever be satisfied without you dying is if Jesus, the King of Kings, did the inconceivable and took your place. He was your substitute who lived the life that you should have lived and died the death that you should have died in your place so that you can be received by God with grace. That's why he had to die. And so I think Jesus would say to a despairing culture like ours, you need me. You need a king who will do the inconceivable. Without me, you have no hope. Of course you're in despair. You have no meaning. You are separated from your creator. And all 
and, and with all of the meaning and all of the purpose that comes with a relationship with the Creator. You're separated from that. Of course your life is meaningless. Of course you are despairing. Of course you are grabbing all sorts of things to find meaning that end up proving futile. Of course, because you're separated from God. You need a king who will do the inconceivable, who will die for his subjects on a cross. That's what you need. That's what he says to our culture. That's the cure that Paul Krugman can't come up with. You need a king. You need the king of kings who did the inconceivable for you. That's number one. It's the first thing he would say to our culture. But here's the second. This is, that's not all that Jesus says. I want you to understand, here's the second part of the cure for a culture in despair. And I want to warn you, before we even get into this, this is where Jesus is going to suck the air out of the room this morning. If he blew the, the mind of the disciples in the first part of the passage, he's going to blow your mind in this part of the passage. And frankly, some of you aren't going to like this either. Let's read it from verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, if anyone would come after me, He must deny himself and take up his cross. Now, I'm just going to let that sit in the, in the air for just a moment. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. And follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come uh, with power. I want you to write this second point down if you can still hold on to your pen. <laughs> write this down. You need to take up your cross too. You need a king who will do the inconceivable, who goes to a cross for his subjects. You need to take up your cross too. Now, that sucks the air out of the room, doesn't it? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Do you know what happens after Jesus says this? Like next year, when we get into the second half of the Gospel of Mark, you're going to notice. Remember, those of you who have been with us, the first half of this book, you see all these huge crowds following Jesus. I mean, they love it, right? Because he's healing and he's casting out demons. And he's feeding people. He's doing all of these things and they love him. And I mean, people are just flocking after him. And he has to get away sometimes just to get away from the huge crowds. And he can't already get away from it because they come chasing after him, these huge crowds. You know what happens in the second half of the book after he says this? All those crowds begin to thin away. They thin away. After he says, you need to take up your cross too. Now they begin to thin away. Until the night before Jesus is crucified on the cross. Even his disciples leave him. And there is no one 
with him. It just sucks the air right out of the room, doesn't it? You need to take up your cross too. That, that changes everything, doesn't it? This, when he says this, look, it makes almost no sense to us, does it? If Jesus would have said, now, uh, now, if you want to follow me, indulge yourself, pamper yourself, stand up for your rights, put yourself first, win at all costs, get ahead of the pack, don't let anyone get ahead of you, survival of the fittest, of, of the fittest. winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. We would have understood any of those phrases, we would have gotten behind all of that, and we would have put our hands in the air, and we would have said, yeah, yeah. But instead, he says, you need to take up your cross too. And the crowds begin to thin. <laughs> what, is it, what is this phrase, take up your cross, what does that even mean, right? Because, like, look, we've been taught from the time we were kids, you know, we've been taught, you know, put yourself first and, 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 you know, succeed at all costs and winning is everything. We've been taught all of that stuff, right? And so when Jesus says something so appalling, so shocking, like take up your cross, we're like, what in the world does that mean? We have a hard time getting our heads around something like that, don't we? That's why one of the words that we have is part of our strategy. You know, we say believe in Christ, experience community, and then the third one is unlearn. There's so much. When you come to a relationship with Jesus Christ, there's so much of what you have been taught all of your life that you have to unlearn. And this is one of those things. Jesus says, take up your cross. What does that even mean? Well, first, it means this. It means to get a new identity. Like, get a new identity. I want you to notice that he says in verse 35, he says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will, uh, will save it. The Greek word that is translated life here is the Greek word uh, psyche, from which we get the word psychology. It's a word that, that actually meant uh, your identity, like your personality, what makes you distinct and valuable. And so what Jesus is saying here is don't build your identity on gaining things in the world. You see what he says in verses 36 and 37? He says, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Well, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Here's what he's saying. He's saying that every culture points to certain things, and it says, if you have this, if you have these things, if you have that, then you'll know that you are somebody. If you acquire this, if you get this, if you gain this, then you'll know that you're really somebody. And like it's different in every culture. Uh, like in traditional cultures, uh, like in traditional cultures, you're not somebody until you have family and children, okay? Uh, in individualistic Western cultures, like American culture, you're not somebody until you gain a career, until, you, until you've been successful, until you may have made money, until you have a reputation, until you have status, those kinds of things. But in every single culture, uh, every single culture says that identity is performance-based. Like you have to get it. Then you know you're somebody. Okay? It's achievement-based. But Jesus says... When he says this thing about take up your cross, he's saying that will never work. 
You know, all of that achievement-based, performance-based stuff, it will never work. Think about it. No matter how much, okay, think about this. No matter how much of those things you gain, like let's say you're in a traditional family culture and it's like you, you're not somebody until you have kids. How many kids do you have to have until you have meaning? Like how many kids do you have to have? Is it two? Is it three? Is it five? Is it ten? How many? How many? In a, in a, in a culture like, like our culture here in America, in an individualistic culture, think about this. You know, no matter how much of the things you gain, uh, you can never get your identity really from those things. Because it's never enough to really make sure of who you are. Think about it. Money. How much money do you have to make before you're somebody? How much money? Um, How much success do you have to have? How much success? There's always someone more successful. How much success do you have to have before you're somebody? Um, Or how much of someone's love do you have to have before you know that you're somebody? How much? Tell me. What quantity? What's the amount? Anybody got an answer for that? No, of course not. There is no answer to that. How much do you have to have? Well, you never know. And then, what happens? What happens if something threatens that? What if something threatens that? Well, then you start to fall apart. You feel like you don't have a self anymore. And you don't have a self because your self is completely based on that thing that is being threatened. It's the way it works. Jesus says this doesn't work. And don't you see, this is why our culture is so despairing. This is why so many people in Evansville uh, are, are despairing. It's why you're despairing. Because you've been taught from birth to find your identity in things and people that will never satisfy. But Jesus is so radical that he says, that stuff will never work. I want you to unlearn everything you've learned about what gives you identity, about how to know that you're valuable. I want you to lose the old self, the old identity. Uh, And I want you to lose that in favor of basing yourself and your identity completely and totally on relationship to me and what I did for you on the cross and nothing else. And nothing else. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, he means get a new identity. But but it also means something else. It means that you need to get a new agenda. A new agenda. When Peter hears that Jesus is going to have to suffer and be killed, he's furious. Why is he so furious? Now, now, now think about this. He could have just been confused. That would have made sense. Because he'd been taught from the time he was a child that the Messiah was going to come and politically liberate Israel with a show of strength and power. If he'd have been confused, we'd have all gotten it. But he's not confused. He's furious, so furious that he rebukes Jesus. Just like Jesus had rebuked the demons. He rebukes Jesus with that kind of energy and strength. Why is he so furious? The reason is Peter had an agenda. Peter's agenda led from strength to strength, and it didn't have crosses in it, and it didn't have suffering in it. And Peter was convinced that he was going to ride Jesus' coattails, or his robe, as it were, uh, all the way to power, 
that he was going to be part of Jesus' cabinet. Peter was going to be a celebrity. Peter was going to be powerful. That was Peter's agenda. Glory without any suffering. Okay? And when he sees that Jesus isn't going to get him there, he rebukes him. But look, you can't have Jesus in your life like that. In that case, your agenda is the end and Jesus is just the means. You're using him. But you can't use Jesus. He's the king of kings. You can't come to a king with an agenda. You can't come to a king negotiating. If you do this for me, I'll follow you. You can't come to a king like that. You don't come to a king like that. With kings, you lay your sword at their feet and you say, command me. I will do whatever you tell me to do. But don't forget. Don't forget this, folks. Jesus is not just a king. He's a king who does the inconceivable. He's a king on a cross. If he was only a king, you'd have to submit to him because you have to. But he's a king who went to the cross for you. Therefore, you can trust him with whatever he commands you, with whatever he asks of you. You can trust him. You can trust his agenda for your life. You don't have to have an agenda for your life to bring to him. How much more then, because of what he did for you on a cross, should you come to him, not negotiating, and say to Jesus, Lord, whatever you say, uh, I will do. Whatever you send, I will accept. How much more should you do that, given what Jesus did for you on the cross? And you see, this idea of taking up your cross, it means dying to self-determination, to the control of your own life. Uh, it means dying to using him for your agenda. And I want to suggest that this is why our culture is so despairing. We have completely divorced ourselves from the king of kings. We have completely eliminated him. This is why so many Christians are so despairing. Because we have eliminated him from our kingship. We have said, yes, I'll follow you if you'll get me to heaven. Yes, I'll follow you as long as you take me from glory to glory. But we have not said, yes, I will follow you even if you take me through suffering. I will go to a cross for you, Jesus. We have said, I will only follow you under certain conditions. That's it. That's why our culture and even Christians within our culture are so despairing. Independent from the king for whom we were created, we always end up in despair. Because everything that we have grabbed for, for our identities, for our agendas, all of those things turn up empty. And in the end, they prove to all be futile. Throughout the first half of this gospel, Mark has wanted us to ask, who is this Jesus? And Peter tells us he's the king of kings. And now exactly halfway through this gospel, the question that Mark wants us to begin to ask begins to change. It changes from who is this Jesus to what are the implications for me of following this Jesus. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross too. As we close this series on that pivotal moment in the Gospel of Mark, I want to be direct and I want to ask some of you this morning who perhaps have never considered this question before, I want to ask you, 
Who do you say Jesus is? It's an extremely important question. In fact, I do not shy away from saying to you that it is the single most important question of your life that you need to settle. More important than who you will marry. More important than what you will do for a living. More important than what house are you going to live in. More important than how many children are you going to have. More important than where you're going to be tomorrow. The most important question in your life is this question of who do you say Jesus is. There is no sitting on the fence. Jesus doesn't give you that luxury. He has to be one of three people. He either has to be a liar. He has said that he is the creator of the universe throughout the Gospel of Mark. He has said that he must go to the cross to suffer. He's the only way that we can have a relationship with God. He, is, he has to go to the cross to suffer. Now, either he's lying about that, or he is a lunatic on the level of a poached egg, or he is who he says he is, Lord of the universe. You have to make a decision which one of those three that he is. And there are many people that say many things. You know, you go out on social media, you can find all sorts of people that say things. Go out on YouTube sometime. Google all of this stuff on YouTube. And I mean, you're going to find people who say all sorts of crazy things about who Jesus is. The question isn't, what do they say? The question isn't, what does that person say? What does that expert say? What does that social media person say? The question is, who do you say Jesus is? That is uh, the question. For those of you who have settled that question, because I know that there are people in the room this morning who have decided, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. I believe that he is the King of Kings. And I ask you a very difficult and very pointed question too as we close this series on this pivotal point where the question begins to shift from who Jesus is to what are the implications to following him. Have you taken up your cross Can I ask you a question? What has it cost you to follow Jesus? What might you have to give up if you were to take up your cross? Maybe a job. Maybe it takes you some places that you know you don't need to go to. Maybe that job provides... Maybe that job, you're, you, know, you, you stick in it because I mean, it pays you really well. Maybe you have to give up some money. How about all the vacations that you take? How about, man, before I even say this, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to tell you that I, I prayed about whether to bring this one up because I know it's going to offend some people. And I had to sort through whether this is a personal thing or whether this is something uh, for the cause of Christ. And I decided to talk about it with you. How about your kids' soccer tournament? Some of you have got your kids in, you know, like some of the elite leagues and things, and it requires you to be gone all weekend long. And you can't, you know, it's like it's hard for you to even be a part of a church community on a regular basis because you're gone all the time. Now, let me ask you something. What does that say to your kids about the importance of Christ to you, the relative importance of Christ to you? If you're away from the place where on every Sunday you go to declare his death and resurrection, what does that say? 
And then you kids, your kids grow up, and then you wonder, well, you know, they don't seem to be interested in Christ. Maybe your kids need to see you make some sacrifices. And maybe those sacrifices even have implications for them. But they do. You make those sacrifices because Jesus Christ is so important to you. He did so much for you that you'd be willing to take up your cross to follow him. Maybe it means the second home that takes you away on so many weekends so many that you can't even be a participating active part of a church community. Maybe it's a boyfriend. Maybe it's a girlfriend who isn't good or right for you because they don't believe what you believe. What has it cost you to follow Jesus? I've really sucked the air out of the room now, haven't I? But I'm in good company. In order to finish the work on the new building that we have bought, two couples in our church, I want you to listen to this, two couples in our church, I won't mention who they are, two couples in our church took out personal, secured loans to allow us to do the work. Now, we got a loan from the bank, but it wasn't enough to do all that we needed to do. And so two couples in our church took out personal Secured loans to allow us to do the work. Do you, do you understand what that means? Like in, in, in one couple's case in particular, they put the value of their very livelihood up. And if the worst happened, if, like if the church folded or couldn't meet our bills or whatever, the bank would take their personal assets, which would include their personal livelihood, what they do for a living. And I talked to the husband this past week about it. And he said to me, I feel better about this than anything I've ever done in my life. He and his wife feel that the value of reaching people for Christ in this community and being part of the local church far surpasses what they have risked in his name. What does it cost you to follow Christ? Jesus is saying, take up your cross. Hold back nothing. If you try to save yourself, in the long run, you will find despair. But if you take up your cross and follow Christ, you will get him, and with him, you will get life thrown in. What does our culture need? What do you need? You need a king who will do the inconceivable. And what's the cause for our despair? Because so many of us live for ourselves. And Jesus says, you want a cure? Take up your cross too and follow me. Would you bow your heads with me as we close this series in prayer? Our Lord Jesus Christ, it is amazing. It is remarkable that the gospel of Mark, just the first half of the gospel of Mark, could have so much to say to us. So much to say about you and who you are. And Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that this morning, this moment, that you would take the words of Scripture and that you would apply them deeply into our souls, piercing beneath the surface the physical parts of our lives and getting into the spiritual parts of our lives, the soul 
pierce all the way there. Lord, I pray for those that are here this morning that have never considered the question of who is Jesus. I pray in this moment right now that they would make a decision about who Jesus is, that they, like Peter, would say, as a result of the evidence of the first half of the Gospel of Mark, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. And if that's you today, where you're sitting in the privacy of your seat, you can say, I believe Jesus is the Christ, the King of kings, for whom I was made. And that there is no other way to eternal life than Him. You can say that in the privacy of your seat. And if you say that in the privacy of your seat, your life changes forever. And then, Lord, for those who have settled that decision, people like me and others in the room, Lord, would you show us where we can take up our cross? What would you have us sacrifice for your name? Where does it cost us? Lord, would you have us consider that question? Lord Jesus, I want to be one of those people who follows you all the way to the cross. I fear that had I been one of those people in the gospel of Mark, when you said that, I might have have been one of the people who abandoned you. In fact, I feel certain I would have. But Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that you can use very imperfect people like me. And Lord, thank you for a relationship with you. It's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship this morning and pray. Amen.